Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed and evil, full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Father, as we come to this passage of of Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, We recognize the severity of the words. We recognize, Father, how serious this really is. Truly, Lord, I'm not sure how anybody could read these verses and not acknowledge that you have made clear what your will is. I pray, Father, as we talk about this this morning, that you will remove opinion from all of our hearts and replace it with truth. Help us, Lord, simply to hear what is right and what is true, regardless of how we feel. May our feelings not get in the way of your divine word this morning. And I pray this by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of days, the end times, the last days, the final hour... Phrases like these evoke all kinds of responses from people, don't they? Some people hear end of days, last days, and and get kind of excited. I'm one of those. 
filled with joy and excitement in the possibilities of, of what's about to happen of, of Jesus coming. Others hear that phrase, the last days, and they are filled with fear and dread. Still others are filled with skepticism and disdain, even disbelief. As Peter said, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. But if we honestly pause and look at what is happening, not only in our communities, but societally, nationally, even globally, it's hard not to recognize that the age of grace is quickly coming to a close. It's hard not to at least ask the question, how long will God be patient? How long is He going to put up with us? And with the way the world is headed. Now, over the years here at the bridge, we've seen many different biblical proofs of the last days. Indicators, if you will, of the last days and of the fact that we are in the end of the end times. We've looked at many things. Here's one perhaps you hadn't considered. Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 28, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. What does He tell us? We love to sing, these are the days of Elijah. But I might add a verse, these are the days of Lot. And what we see happening in these days, not unlike what was happening in the days of the first century, but Jesus said this kind of behavior, this this kind of global attitude, what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah will be happening in the end of the end times will be another indicator that we are close to the coming of Jesus. What was going on in the days of Lot? Well, Jesus tells us eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building, ants marching through everyday life. With total disregard for the rainbow-colored elephant in the living room. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, in the days of Lot, Lot and his family were living in Sodom, knowing what was going on. Not everybody in Sodom were Sodomites, although maybe in those days you'd have to be called that because you lived there, but you know what I'm saying. But if they weren't, they knew what was happening and approved of it. People will look at Scripture and say, oh, that's archaic, it's ancient, it has no application to today. Well, I ask you, what was happening in Rome when Paul wrote this letter? Exactly what we see happening today. Was Paul intolerant back then? Was he a bigot back then? Or was he speaking back then truth that we see happening today as well? That we see as an indication. Jesus draws His last day's example from Genesis 19 and the issue in Genesis 19 if you read the story is bold homosexuality Jesus says it's going to be like that you're going to see what was going on in Sodom going on not just going on under the surface under the current as a side issue but boldly going on in society and embraced by society 
In Genesis 19, two angels come down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord is with Abraham. The three of them had gone to Abraham. Now two angels make their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they come into Sodom and Lot comes out to greet them. And invites them to come stay in his house. And they say, no, we're going to just stay out here in the, in the center of town tonight. And Lot says, no, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> come stay at my house. And they say, no, we're fine. And finally he convinces them to come in and stay at his house. Well, while they are in the house in the evening, we're told that all the men of Sodom surround the house. They march in boldly and begin to demand that Lot surrender his guests to them. Genesis 19, verse 5. They say, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. Have relations? The exact Hebrew word is translated that we may know them, but they didn't just want to be buddies. It wasn't just about getting together and, and, and having a chat. You see, Lot knew exactly what they were asking. Genesis 19, verse 7, Lot said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Their desire to know these two visitors in Lot's house was the same as Adam's desire to know Eve. It was a sexual knowing that they were looking for. And the Bible is absolutely clear about what was going on in the days of Lot. Days according to Jesus that characterize the last days. Boldness, a brazenness, and a broad acceptance and approval of that going on. Speaking of Judah's sin... The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And truly the same sexual behavior of the men of Sodom has become the defining social issue of our time. How can you say it's the defining social issue, Rick? Well, look at the newspaper. Look at the courts. Some believe that we have made great progress. Others are quietly appalled, I would say perhaps too quietly. If you think about the courts just of the past 23 years, go back to December 21st, 1993. The Department of Defense issued a directive prohibiting the U.S. military from barring applicants from service based on their sexual orientation. At the same time, the policy still did not allow applicants to engage in homosexual acts or to declare their homosexuality. That famous law was known as don't ask, don't tell. You all remember that. Don't ask, don't tell. We won't ask, but you don't act on it. We won't ask, but you don't say it. December 21st, 1993. Three years later, September 21st, 1996. President Clinton signed into law, into law, the Defense of Marriage Act. A law brought up, appropriately, from Congress, which is where legislation is supposed to happen. Sent to the President's desk, signed by President Clinton. Defending marriage, defining marriage specifically as a legal union between one man and one woman, and the law stated that no state is required to recognize a same-sex marriage from out of state. 
That was law, September 21st, 1996. Less than two decades, both of those two things were reversed. December 18th, 2010, the U.S. Senate under Harry Reid voted 65 to 31 to repeal, don't ask, don't tell, for the purpose of allowing homosexuals to openly serve in the military. February 23rd, 2011, Barack Obama said his administration would no longer defend the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act. There's a word for that. Lawlessness. It was written into law. This wasn't a matter of his choice as president. It was a law in our country that marriage would be between one man and one woman. But our current sitting president said, we won't defend it anymore. We don't believe in it anymore. The times, they are a change in. 20 years. And a lot can happen. But it only took four years from that point for the Supreme Court to do something many thought would never happen in America on June 26, 2015, when they ruled to redefine marriage to include homosexual unions. That night, many of you know, the White House was lit up in rainbow colors. Well, that was seven months ago. What's happened since then? game's not over, gang. The rush is on. Quietly, on December 26th, the Washington State Human Rights Commission put a new policy into place. You might want to be aware of this one. It has not been publicized. It's not a law, mind you, but it is a policy that requires buildings open to the public to allow transgender people to use restrooms and locker rooms of the gender with which they identify on that particular day. Which means, and by the way, this includes public schools, it means if a man decides on a particular day, today I'm a woman, because that's how I feel, they can go into a women's restroom and cannot be arrested for it. And cannot be even told that they're not allowed to be in there. If a woman says, I feel today like a man, she can go into a men's restroom. I don't want my kids going to the bathroom in public anymore. We're going to take full advantage of home court advantage. Because think about what what, what doors are opening because of that act. And today, phrases like gender fluid, uh, transitioning, have become commonplace, taught and encouraged in our public schools. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if I said this on a Wednesday or, or a Sunday recently, but Oak Harbor High School right now has teachers working on a sensitivity training to help teachers in accepting and encouraging gender fluidity. Well, what does that mean, gender fluidity? It means I can decide, depending on the day, how I feel. It means I can be one gender one day and another gender another day, and it just depends on my feelings... And here's where we are. We're witnessing the broad approval of any and all sexual expression regardless of societal impact. Luke 17.29 tells us on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, there is coming a wrath, a condemnation, and a judgment. After a warm greeting, Paul begins his letter to the saints in Rome with condemnation. 
It is, to my mind, one of the most serious portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. What the world sometimes misunderstands about Christians who simply want to stand by the truth is we're not standing around desiring to condemn the world. Just the opposite. We want to see people saved for Jesus Christ. Saved for eternal life. Forgiven from sin. Freed up from unrighteousness. To live in the joy and the peace of the Holy Spirit. That's what we desire. Thankfully, we hit Romans 3.21 and Paul shifts into salvation. And the whole rest of the letter defining salvation in Jesus Christ and, and of course the vindication of God's work and His will. And then he's going to give us exhortations on how to live and it's marvelous. But we have to deal with this first. Why? Because we've got to know why we need to be saved. You can't just talk about salvation without dealing with condemnation. Without dealing with judgment. We have to recognize, here's the problem. And there is a problem. And until we know there's a problem, why would we want to be saved? And you've talked to people that are there. who say, well, what do I need saving for? I'm fine. Well, let's talk about condemnation, Paul would say. Let me explain to you why you need saving. And by the way, what we're going to deal with this morning is just one third of the issue. We'll get into the second third, maybe, maybe the second and third third on Wednesday night in chapters 2 and the first part of chapter 3 where Paul is just laying out a, a case saying and understand the saying that all people stand condemned by their sin. All people need the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. None of us are exempt. We're just dealing with the first third this morning. You can't talk about salvation until you know you need it. So let's figure this out. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I want to give you three areas to consider this morning. And the first one is the problem. The problem. Paul begins this section with what we could call a thesis statement. Let me ask you the question. Is humanity, are people inherently good, neutral, or evil? Are we inherently good, neutral, or evil? That's the philosopher's debate. There are those who say people are basically good and if left to themselves, good things will happen. And there are those who say, well, it's kind of neutral. It just depends on the life circumstance. Some will naturally go good. Some will naturally go bad. Many people land in the good and neutral camp, which is why our world has such a hard time understanding evil. Why we keep hearing the question, how can bad things happen to good people? I'll tell you how. Because the Bible clearly states that humanity is inherently evil. That the human heart is not inherently good, is not neutral. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible clearly helps us to understand that if left to our own devices, left to ourselves to go whatever way we want to go, it's Lord of the Flies, man. We will rebel. We will choose evil. And Romans 1 verse 18, that is Paul's thesis statement for the whole section. He points out two issues 
as to the reason the wrath of God is revealed. He says it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is rebellion against God. Unrighteousness is being opposed to anything right or opposed to man. You could even divide it that way. Ungodliness is against God and unrighteousness is against man. It's kind of like dividing the Ten Commandments. The first half are our response to God. The second half are our response to mankind, humanity, our neighbors. Unrighteousness, ungodliness, they go hand in hand. These are the things which reveal God's wrath. By the way, the word reveal. I'm going to give you a bunch of definitions of Greek words as we go through here because you need to hear these and understand this to understand the passage, I think, a little better. The word reveal in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. The word reveal is apocalypto. Sound familiar? It's where the world gets the word apocalypse. Apocalypse now. Well, the apocalypse is happening, and they always connect it to destruction. It just means unveiling. It just means revealing. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is Jesus revealed to us. Get that, because here, God is being revealed to us. Remember what I said last week. That this letter to the Romans is filled, chock full of references to God more than any other letter in the entire New Testament. 156 uses of the word God. I was reminded by, I think it was Rustus last week who texted me and said, hey, that's interesting, 156 uses of the word God. Well, the 156 in the Hebrew, uh, if you use the Hebrew letters as numbers, 156 is Ani Elohim, I am God. This book is about God. This issue is about God. And I want to shift this a little bit because typically when people approach what we're studying and looking at this morning, they approach it from an about man perspective. It's not about man. It's about God. Which is why he starts off, the wrath of God is revealed. This is a God issue. This is about Him. This is not about me. It's about Him. His wrath being revealed. And the wrath of God is not new to the postmodern world. God's reaction to rebellion traces all the way back to the first man and woman in the garden. His wrath was revealed back then. His wrath has been revealed across all history. In fact, in fact Frederick Schiller, who was an 18th century poet, he said the history of the world is the judgment of the world. The history of the world is the judgment of the world. Now listen. God is not poised to pounce. He's not waiting to whack the world. That's not His heart. The revelation of the wrath of God here, the word wrath is arge. Arge, A-R-G-E, if you want to jot this down, and you might want to, because it's the word for wrath used throughout the New Testament, and the word wrath literally translated means anger. Indignation. Fury. God's anger is revealed. Not because He's an angry God, but because He is personally offended. Because He is visibly upset. Because He is emotionally furious by humanity's rebellion. 
Vincent put it this way. He said, God's wrath is God's personal emotion with regard to sin. Let me put it to you this way. Parents, ever been angry when your child talked back? Ever been frustrated by a teenager's rebellion? Exasperated by disobedience? Our Father, get this, our Father feels this personally. What God's wrath, the revelation of God's wrath tells me is this hurts the heart of God. It angers Him. It upsets Him. He feels this emotionally. God is not some detached spirit off on a cloud somewhere just waiting to strike the world because, ho ho, I like striking. He's upset by what He sees. You don't get angry about something that doesn't matter to you. And humanity matters to God and it upsets Him. It angers Him to no end to see how we rebel against Him. And as a parent myself, I get that. When I'm angry with my kids, it doesn't mean that I love them less. In fact, it's because I love them so much that I get, that I get angry when they do things that I know ultimately will hurt them. The wrath of God, the anger of God revealed shows us something of the Father's heart. You want to get a better, tangible picture of what this looks like? Jesus came walking into the synagogue in Capernaum on Shabbat. As He came in, He noticed there in the synagogue a man with a withered hand, all shrunken up and useless. And Jesus knew what was going on. You see, the Jewish leaders were all standing around watching Him. What's He going to do with this withered-handed man. How's Jesus going to deal with this? They were waiting to pounce on Him if He should dare heal this man on the Sabbath. Well, Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus said to them, to the Jewish leaders, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save or to kill? And they kept silent. And after looking around at them with gay. Anger, wrath, grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored. We see in that example the wrath of God. Jesus felt wrath. He felt anger. He looked at the the lack of compassion, at the hard-heartedness of these guys, and it ticked him off. Because it shouldn't be that way. And the attitude of Jesus in that moment is the same as the attitude of God when the wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God feels our sin and our rebellion. It angers Him deeply because He loves us so much. And so God's anger is revealed by our sin. Contrast that with what Paul said in the preceding verse. God's anger, His wrath is revealed by our sin. Well, what is revealed in the Gospel? Verse 17, the righteousness of God. The wrath of God is revealed in sin. Our sin. The righteousness of God is revealed in the good news. It's what He offers. It's what He desires. It's what He prefers. 
Mankind's rebellion reveals God's wrath. God's good news reveals God's righteousness. Which would you rather have? I asked my kids, would you rather daddy was angry? Or would you rather dad has good news for you? Which will it be? I'm saying all this and sitting here for a moment because we need to understand God is not innately wrathful. God is innately good. He is inherently loving. He is righteous. He is perfect. But because of that loving, merciful, perfect righteousness, He must judge rebellion. Otherwise, He's not perfectly righteous and good and loving and merciful. The problem is not with the heart of God. The problem is with the heart of man. The problem is our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, even to go so far as to, Paul says, suppress the truth. Now, the truth is what the truth is. The truth is unchanging. The truth is the reality. But what people do in the hardness of the heart is try to suppress it. I can't change truth, but I can suppress it. The word means stifle or or hold it down. You could even say to repress the truth. But think about this. For a man or a woman to suppress the truth, you have to know what the truth is. You, You don't suppress something you don't know is there. You don't cover up something or try to hide something or try to stifle something that you know to be real. I have to know what truth truly is to suppress it. And verse 19 tells us, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. You're suppressing the truth. The agnostic says, I'm not sure if there's a God. Suppression. The atheist says, I'm sure there's not a God. Suppression. My friends, they are both lying. Because the truth is, they know. They just don't want to believe. They just want to push away the possibility. We all know there's a God. I've said this before. We all know. Come on. If we're being honest, we all know in our heart of hearts there is a God, but some suppress that knowledge. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line goes through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Gang, I can look at a sculpture and know it was designed. I can look at the painting of the Mona Lisa and understand that there was artistic design that went into that. I can look at at a building, a work of architecture, and I can say, this was designed, by the way, by a very talented man. 
We see design and we recognize design for what it is. We know there's someone behind it. I can look at a Lego creation of my seven-year-old and know he put it together. No, Dad, I just threw all the pieces on the carpet and they made this cool car. It's just being honest, gang. And when people look out at the grandeur of the universe, the complexity of the human body, the wonder of all creation, when they see all that and say, I don't believe, they are in deep suppression. Why? Well, it's not that they can't believe, it's that they don't want to. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, Or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The Greek word futile there, matiyau, or matiyao, it means to make empty, to become nothing. It's only used here in the New Testament, only used one time. To become nothing in our thinking. What a tragedy it is when the human mind embraces futility. When bright minds go dark. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Ever sit under a professor of wisdom? One who professed to be wise? College students, don't be so impressed by your professors. Oh, but but he's a learned man. Far too many professors believe themselves to be learned. Far too many consider themselves to be wise and in the, the unreal little microcosm of their university setting, of their classroom where they reign supreme... They will bear down on students proclaiming their own wisdom. Professing to be wise, they became fools. As for me, I can tell you I'm not wise. I think I've told you many, many times. I am not. If you hear anything wise spoken in this church fellowship, it's because it's the Word of God. It's because the Spirit of God is speaking. It is not because of me. And ask my wife and kids... <laughs> or listen to any one of the number of puns I occasionally throw you out. The lowest form of humor is the pun. <laughs> Let's be clear where the wisdom is here. James says in James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What will? The wisdom of God. So that my mind doesn't have to be futile, I can say, no, no, I am filled with His wisdom. Let me show you. Let me prove it to you. It's His wisdom, not mine. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 tells us we are destroying speculations. I love that. Stop speculating. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I loved it. I was so encouraged this morning. Glenn was telling me about a couple of gentlemen he was with yesterday and and they were discussing how in their small groups, rather than sitting around saying, what do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? What's your opinion on this? 
more and more what is being asked is, what does God's Word say about this? I was so... That's awesome. We're getting it. That it isn't a matter of my opinion on what Scripture says. It's what Scripture says. Because Scripture is clear. Well, I don't think it really means that. You're professing to be wise and you are a fool. If you think Scripture does not say what it clearly says. Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now by the Spirit, Paul is laying out a case. And what he shows here is where futility gives way to stupidity. And he goes back to early examples. Idolatry. Idol worship was one of the earliest signs of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Of futility. That you would actually trade in an incorruptible, glorious God for a corruptible idol. A symbol of another human being or of an animal. Or the last line there, crawling creatures, reptiles. Praise the holy gator. Really? (laughs) Trading in spiritual worship for wood and stone is a bad trade. Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, that's the problem. Mankind in the hardness of the heart. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. Rejecting the truth. That's the problem. Now watch the progression. How it progresses from here. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now three times, Paul is going to use the phrase, God gave them over. Here's the progression. Three times, God gave them over. Why? Because even in His furious anger, God will not force your obedience. I've been angry with my kids and recognize they have to learn. They have to choose. They have to decide what they're going to do. And it only lasts for a certain amount of time. And you know this, parents, again, your kids get to a certain point where you can't force it anymore. Where you can't say, you will obey me, you will do as I say, you will follow every word that I tell you. I crossed that threshold with some of my kids, which is why the lights were left on all night last night. God says, you choose. I am angry with what I'm seeing, but you choose. Your choice. This is what you want. God gave them over And here is the progressive threefold giving over. First, God gave them over to desire. Verse 24 says, In the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The issue is the lust of the heart. It's desire. Why does God give us over? To the lusts of our hearts. Because we'd rather worship the physical body than worship the maker. We would rather worship the creature than the creator. Ancient idolatry was just acting out what people still do today in the heart. Lust and desire for things. 
By the way, it's real easy to discover who or what you worship. It's very simple. Ask yourself, what is my delight? What is my delight? What is the thing that I pleasure in the most? What do I give myself to? Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart because from the delight, delighting in the Lord changes my heart and makes the desires of my heart align with the desires of His heart. As I'm delighting in Him, I'm wanting only to do what He wants to do. I understand that to a degree in my marriage. I want to do what my wife wants to do. Why? Because I delight in her. She wants to go shopping? Let's go shopping. I hate shopping. (laughs) But I'll tell you something. I would rather be out shopping with my wife than out playing basketball with the boys. Because I love being with her. There's a degree of delight there that drives the desire. And it works the same with the Lord. Delight yourself in Him and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because the desires of your heart are to delight in the Lord. To be with the Lord. But God gave them over to their fleshly desire. To their human desire. Secondly, God gave them over then to degradation. Degradation. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them over, secondly, to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And by simply reading those two verses in Canada can get you arrested. At least two pastors have been arrested for hate speech in Canada because they read those two verses. Not because they gave opinion on them. Not because they were standing outside holding up Westboro Baptist Church signs, which by the way are despicable. But because they read Scripture. God gave them over to degradation. What is degradation? Degrading passion. Degradation simply means downgrading. He gave them over to a downgrade. To a cheapening of what was so valuable at the start. He gives us this absolutely beautiful male and female relationship. Creates us, man and woman. Puts us together as a team. And we blew it in the garden. Well, I wasn't in the garden, Rick. Now, you didn't sin like Adam, but you sinned. He made this beautiful thing. And we downgraded it. We cheapened it. And the example that Paul gives of this progressive giving over, first, to desire the lust of their hearts in in impurity, and secondly, to their degrading passions, the example Paul gives is the act of homosexuality. Now, I need to be clear here. Those who fear to offend when talking about this section of Scripture, even pastors and professors who want to ease the teaching, they will say this word or the word translated in the Bible homosexual is pornea, which is sexual immorality. So it's just all sexual immorality, and you can't pinpoint or point out simply the homosexual. If we can say 
that the Bible doesn't specifically address homosexuality, if we can just say it's pornea, all sexual immorality, well then we can enter it into the everybody does it category. The collective of the human experience. We all do it. Everybody does it. We can normalize and humanize the behavior as common. Here's the problem with that. Paul doesn't use a single word. He uses a multiplicity of words. He doesn't use a single word to describe homosexuality. No, instead, he describes it in graphic detail with the clearest language possible, the actual downgrading behavior. He says the women exchange their natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. There's really no way around that, gang. And by the way, that's not Leviticus, that's Romans. That's not Old Testament, it's New Testament. And it shouldn't make any difference. What actually that tells me is God is absolutely uh, even. Straight across the board, He is consistent. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In all of His Word, He does not change. We change. We try to change. And we suppress. But He does not change. And His Word does not change. So why does Paul call out this particular sin? People don't like that. Well, everybody sins. Which, by the way, the moment someone says, well, everybody sins, they're saying homosexuality is a sin. Right? Because now it's included in, in the list of sins. Everybody sins. Why pick on simply the homosexual person? Because homosexuality by nature is a direct affront to God's intended created design. That's the difference. God did not create two men in the garden or two women. He created the male and female and then commanded them be fruitful and multiply. You cannot do that in a homosexual relationship. You can't keep one of the most basic commands of God in all history. God made us a certain way. And to reject that, the natural, just how you're naturally made, for the unnatural is ungodly and it's unrighteous. It's opposed to God and it's opposed to what is right. I'm trying to be as clear and as logical as possible. By the way, what else does the Bible say about this? Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That is, it's abhorrent and it's detestable to God. That's how God feels about it. This is how He feels. Not how Pastor Rick wants to feel or does feel. This is how God feels. I'm mainly declaring this, by the way, to Christians who already believe in and trust in God because we need to understand how our Father feels about homosexuality. Why? Because so many people in the church don't think it's a problem. We are in a culture where the slide is embracing it as it is because, hey, it's just another relationship. It's a relationship, my friends, that is an abomination, God's Word, To God. Well, that's Old Testament, okay? Jude, verse 7. 
says Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And they are exhibited as an example in the undergoing of the punishment of eternal fire. They're the example of why God's wrath, His anger is ignited and why ultimately He will act There's a word for this used two times in the New Testament. And the word is not pornea. The word pornea means sexual immorality. It's where we get our word pornography, gentlemen, ladies. It is immorality. It is opposed by God. It is ungodly. But there is a specific Greek word that does define homosexuality or is defined as homosexual in the New Testament. And the word is arsenocoitus. Arsenocoitus, it's used twice. Arsenocoitus means male sex. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that is those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that is those who have sex outside of their current marriage, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, Arsenocoitus, male sex. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Paul uses the word again. This is now the second time this word is used. Immoral men and homosexuals, that is, arsenocoitus, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary, listen, contrary to sound Teaching. Sound biblical teaching does not embrace homosexuality as okay. It's not okay. Uh, according to the Word of God. What is the due penalty of their error? Look at that in verse 27. By doing this, it says their own persons are receiving the due penalty of their error. Well, I would say ask Dr. Paul Church. Dr. Church is a highly accomplished, highly respected, long-time urologist at Harvard's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And Paul Church wrote, The evidence is irrefutable, as a doctor, that behaviors common within the homosexual community are unhealthy and high risk for a host of serious medical consequences, including sexually transmitted diseases, HIV and AIDS, Anal cancer, hepatitis, parasitic intestinal infections, and psychiatric disorders. That's what he wrote. He also said life expectancy is significantly decreased as a result of HIV and AIDS, complications from other health problems, and suicide. Do you know what the average life expectancy of a male homosexual is? 47 to 48 years old. It's that young. Whether you... Setting the morality aspect of it aside just for a moment, the physicality, the proof is there, it is unhealthy, it is dangerous, and it is a violent lifestyle. The violence that takes place in homosexual relationships as compared to heterosexual relationships, it's like two to three times. 
And so Dr. Church says life expectancy is significantly, significantly decreased. He says this alone should make it, that is homosexuality, reprehensible to the medical community who has an obligation to promote and model healthy behaviors and lifestyles. And for that he was fired in March. He was denied an appeal in September of 2015. I call that suppressing the truth. All he's doing is speaking the truth. This is what this lifestyle produces. This is what happens. But we can't talk about that. Driving a bus off a cliff will result in the destruction of the bus and the death of everybody in the bus. Well, let's not talk about that. It's fun to drive a bus off a cliff. I was born to drive a bus off a cliff. I feel like driving a bus off a cliff. But if you do, no, no, I don't want to hear what happens. I'll find that out later. I mean, we, we laugh, but dang, it's, it's the same mentality. Why wouldn't we want to know what we talk about smoking? Smoking damages the lungs horribly. It kills early. It causes all kinds of cancers. We know that. It has to be put on the package. So as you're pulling the cigarette out, you see that and go, huh, well, maybe I should think about this. We give the warnings about smoking, but we're not allowed to give the warnings about the homosexual lifestyle. It doesn't make any sense. It is the suppression of the truth. What I'm giving you here is simply what the Bible has to say about this. I hope you understand that. I I have yet to give my opinion. I'm just giving you God's Word on it. Now you may surmise as a teacher of the Word of God what my opinion is. But I can tell you first and foremost we're hearing what God has to say not what Rick thinks. And if you disagree with anything that we've talked about so far you have to take it up with Him. You've got to deal with God on this one. Don't come up to me and go, well, I just can't believe that you said, don't talk to me about it. It's His issue. He's the one who's declared it. Can someone be a practicing homosexual and a Christian? Can someone be gay and be saved? Can someone be gender fluid or transitioning or identify with the LGBT community and still be a Christian? It went viral. Uh, What was the company that put this out? I forget the name of it, but it was on YouTube. And it was, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't mean... And then it had all these people adding things. Hmm? It was BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed Yellow. Put it out on YouTube. It had over a million hits. I'm a Christian, but... And the following, but I'm also a homosexual. Or, I'm a Christian, but, and it was all these things, but I'm not judgmental. Assuming that because you're a Christian, you would be judgmental. And millions, now, there have been several YouTube responses to it that I think have been actually very measured and intelligent and well done. But it's throwing out there the lie, I can be a Christian and be whatever I want. Which denies the fact that being a Christian means I follow after Jesus. Not me. Can someone be in this community? Can someone be, again, a practicing homosexual and be saved? After all, everyone sins, right? You tell a lie, you've just sinned, you can be forgiven for that as a Christian, right? You do something wrong as a Christian, you can be forgiven for that, right? So can someone be gay and be saved? 
As long as they believe in Jesus, it's all good. I want you to keep your finger in Romans and turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, toward the end of the New Testament. Hang with me a little longer. I know for five of you there's a game on today. (laughs) You know what's really funny? We have here in the third row five in orange. And I don't see any blue and green anywhere. (laughs) Come on, Seahawks fans. Where's your fans? Well, we got it in the back. We have one. One representing for next year. God bless the Broncos. Alright, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Listen to God's word on this and let me explain it. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So right there, John says very clearly, you know if someone is a follower of Jesus or not. If they practice sin, they are not. If they practice righteousness, they are. So if I said I'm not a believer, I didn't say that. Are you practicing sin? Are you in the practice of sin? The practice of sin is what has this tendency to deny the desire to be righteous. I sin. Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. I trip up. I fall down. I have this thing called a deceitful heart. And every time I listen to it, it seems to turn me the wrong direction. But my friends, and I can say honestly to you, I practice Righteousness. I'm not righteous by my understanding, by my estimation, but I sure practice righteousness because I want to be right with God. But if I choose a lifestyle that is in practice a sin itself, well, read on. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Rick, you just said that you still sin sometimes. I know. But John said, if you're born of God, you can't sin. You're right. How does that work? It's all a matter of perspective, gang. In the eyes of God, because I have been born again and washed by the blood of Jesus and saved by the Lamb, I can't sin. There is no sin held against me. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Though I will trip, though I will do stupid things, though I will fail, and though I will sometimes even rebel in my foolishness. I am a child of God. There is no condemnation and I can't sin from God's perspective. He sees me as a saved son. From my perspective, I know what I'm capable of. But in the meantime, I am going to practice Righteousness. I am going to practice doing what... If I want to be a good baseball player, I'm out on the field practicing baseball. Well, I want to be a good musician. I practice my guitar. If I don't want to, then I don't practice that. Because we become what we practice. He goes on in verse 10 says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And someone might say, well, what does that say about grace? I thought we were saved by grace. Yes, and when you are saved by grace, all you want to do in response is practice righteousness. So let me ask the question one more time. Can a practicing homosexual, knowing what the Bible says about homosexuality, can a practicing homosexual be saved, be a Christian? And I would answer that based on Scripture, no. What about someone who has those tendencies but doesn't act on them? Absolutely they can be a Christian. Someone who says, I was born with, as a man, a desire for other men. I recognize what God's Word says about it, and I would rather follow after God than the desires of my heart, and so I will follow God, and I will abstain. Yes, that is a brother in Christ. That's a saved person. You see? If I, practice, if I have a tendency toward alcoholism, but I say I will completely abstain from alcohol because I know of my tendency... I'm practicing righteousness. I'm not practicing sin. And it works with any issue in our lives. Pick your issue. What is your uh, Achilles heel? What's your problem? What's your issue that, that, that could really cost you? Do you practice it? Or are you instead practicing righteousness and in all things trying to deny the access of that sin? Romans 6 verse 2, Paul says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Brothers and sisters, you have some say in this. You have some say in the practicing of either righteousness or sin. You can choose it. And John writes that the difference between those who are born again and those who are not is obvious. It is evident in our practice. A person, again, cannot claim righteousness while they are over here strengthening, building up, and working out sin. It's very obvious. It's actually very simple. If you desire to live the way you want to live, God will give you over to that desire, leading to degradation. And finally, God gave them over to depravity. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And by the way, if there's any one of those things on that list that you struggle with, don't practice it. Practice righteousness. If you tend toward gossip, stop it. Don't practice it. If you tend to be disobedient to parents, don't practice that anymore. Practice obedience. See what I'm saying? God gave them over to depravity. And what, by the way, what Paul seems to indicate is that homosexuality and its embrace is a breeding ground for all of these things. Because by the time you got to the degradation of your body, the degrading passions, all these other things become a part of it as well because sin invites sin. Sin embraces sin. 
Which is why you don't just have the homosexual community, you have the LGBT community and more. I know there are more letters, I don't know what they are. I choose not to. (laughs) It's why when you see a gay pride parade, you don't just see homosexuals, you see all manner of sexual immorality played out in those parades, because sin invites sin. And Paul lists out all these things, saying they did not see fit. Those who now have the desires of their heart and the degrading passions, now their minds become depraved. And even understanding right from wrong becomes very difficult, if not impossible. Some might read this list and call it a litany of intolerance. But answer me honestly. When you look at the list that Paul just gave there, verses 28 through 31, are any of these things good? Is there anything on this list that you would want for your life? Do any of these things lead to a positive outcome? In this progression, look at this, desire is what I want. Degradation is a downgraded life because of what I want. Leading to the depraved mind which is unable even to see right from wrong. The Greek word depraved, adokimos, means impure. In fact, the word is used of a smelter dealing with metals. It's an impure metal. It's gold. It's not pure gold. It's silver that, that has problems in it. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Here is the stunning truth. He is talking about Christians. Paul is telling Timothy, in the end times what you're going to start to see is Christians chasing this stuff down. People claiming to be followers of Jesus, but following after their own desires instead. It will mark the end times. Those who fall from faith by means of the hypocrisy of liars, what's that? It's the suppression of truth. The problem is the human heart. The progression is obvious. The prognosis, number three, is death. Verse 32. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let me ask you this. Do I, do we, do you, give hearty approval of what we've just talked about? Does the church, do we align with the culture, Or do we align with the Word of God? Do we embrace what culture says is okay and acceptable? Do we approve of it? Because that is a condemning place to be, my friends. That angers God. I understand this a bit. It upsets me. When I talk to Christian brothers and sisters who blandly accept the homosexual lifestyle is just, that's just where we are in our culture today. I'm not saying that you are to be unloving or uncaring toward a homosexual person, especially one who's not a believer. They need Jesus. What I am saying is to accept the lifestyle is to deny the Word of God. That's called by Paul ungodliness. Well, I'm not homosexual. No, but are you approving of it? 
Are you approving of the bus going off the cliff? By approving, we are denying the homosexual access to the truth and to the gospel grace of Jesus Christ that can restore and forgive. The prognosis is death. Gang, from a spiritual perspective, yes, these are the days of Elijah. But from a worldly perspective, these are the days of Lot. The problem in the human heart, the progression is obvious. And scripture calls it just as we all see it. We all know. We know. I'm not telling you anything that we don't really know. And the prognosis of all these things is death. And that is both for those who do them, and I would say for those who approve them. But I'm a good person, Rick. I'm a good person. Don't worry, moralist. Paul will deal with you in chapter 2. But here's the prognosis of death. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And that makes God angry. He hates death. Jesus never went to a funeral that He approved of. In fact, of the three funerals Jesus went to, He corrected the course in all three. Raising from the dead. He wouldn't accept His own death as final. He hates death. And the death of humanity, because of their rebellion to God, makes God angry. Because He loves so much. Let me go back to where I started. Here's the thing. It isn't about you. It's not about me. It's not about our opinions. It's not even about our behavior. This letter is about the righteousness of God. It's about Him. So I ask you this morning, is anybody asking what He wants? Instead of having conversations about what the church says or what I think or what you think in this section of Scripture. No. What does God want? What does He desire? All the debates and the declarations and the accusations regarding homosexuality or any sin prove this point. We are egocentric. We read the Bible and we say, it's all about us. The prognosis is death, but we must honestly deal with that condemnable state. Because if we do, then we come to the prescription. Last thing. In all of this, The Word is calling us back to the heart of God. His Word. Because the wrath of God reveals the love of God. As I said, He wouldn't be so angered by these things if He didn't love so much, nor would He offer salvation. But you see, He does. Remember the hub of this Gospel, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God's good news is for everyone, regardless of past behaviors, regardless of previous lifestyle choices, regardless of anything you have ever done. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, come to me and I will wash you clean. 
Come to me and I will save you. Come away from the world, away from the culture, and away from society's progressively sick mores, and come to Jesus. Because He offers salvation to the lost. Which is why we have to deal with the truth. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 9, do you not know that the unrighteousness or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's not going to happen. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says to the church of Corinth, such were some of you. Which means some of the church of Corinth were homosexual before. And no longer are. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. I am not defined by my sexuality gang. I am defined by the love of Jesus Christ. Come to Him. God does not want you condemned. Father, we praise Your name and we thank You for Your truth. Give us the confidence of Your Spirit to stand on truth. And to do so in love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.